On a Thursday morning in August, just six months ago, a staffer at a big hospital in downtown Houston, St. Joseph Medical Center, heard a code green on the intercom and did what they always did, ran over to the room. Then it was a code blue. Code blue means somebody needs immediate medical attention. Same room. And I just see blood everywhere, all over the floor. I was actually like, I was actually shocked. It was just kind of like smeared here. There was some there, but it was all over the floor. We had to put on, um, we put shoe covers on in order to walk in the room. That was just how, how much it was. They walked in and saw a 26-year-old college student on the floor, handcuffed with a bullet wound in his chest. He'd been tasered by police before he was shot. And he still had the, like, taser things attached to his chest. And I, was, I mean, that was the first time I'd ever seen what taser lines look like. Just a bunch of wires coming from him. And I remember the surgeon screaming at the cop to take his handcuffs off. He was like, take the cuffs off now. We have no time to waste. And he said it multiple times. Really? He's cuffed on the floor? How, we can't do anything with him cuffed. Just take the damn cuffs off him. Police had shot an unarmed patient in his own hospital room. The fallout from this incident was enormous. Federal investigators came in. The hospital's funding was threatened. It was so contentious that I recorded an interview with this hospital staffer, and to protect their identity, we have replaced the person's voice with an actor saying the exact same words. The story I'm about to tell you is one that we put together in collaboration with the New York Times. Doctor, by the way, is named Scott Shepard. To explain what happened in that hospital room, I want to back up to the day before, 20 hours before the shooting, and tell you about the patient. Doctor saved his life. His name is Alan Payon. He's alive and talking about what happened. And when he does, before you get to the very interesting story about how he ended up with a bullet in his chest, it's also incredibly interesting to hear him describe the day that led up to the shooting. Because during that day, over the course of just a few hours, basically his mind slipped away from him. Bit by bit, he stopped understanding what was real and what wasn't real. And he describes what that feels like in this way I have never heard anybody describe before. It's This American Life from WBEZ Chicago. I'm Ira Glass. Today's program, My Damn Mind. We have two stories on our program today. In one, the brain working for you. In the other, this story brain very much not working for you, not being a helper, not being a pal. And let's get right to it. This is Act One, when your hospital-borne infection is a bullet. The week before this happened, Alan Payon was starting his last semester at college in a new school in a new city. He just moved to Houston two weeks before, anxious to do well. Alan comes from a family with a lot of doctors. His dad, his uncle, both his brothers are on their way to becoming doctors. In this family of overachievers, Alan's the one who's still figuring out what he wants to do. Plays video games with a group of friends from high school, smokes weed, soft-spoken, thoughtful, considerate. And he moved to Houston with a plan to get things done. Finish school, get to grad school, he stopped smoking weed, time to buckle down. And he was stressed out, sleeping only four hours a night. But at the same time, he had all this energy, which I guess is something that just happens to him sometimes. I recognize it as mania. I was like, okay, Alan, you're manic right now. But I didn't think much of it. I was like, okay, this is just going to happen for a little bit, and it'll go away. And that's because, like, in the past, like, sometimes this would happen for a couple of days, and then it would go away. And it would go away, exactly. So he's trying to hold it together. He's going to class. He's forcing himself to talk to people at this new school. He's making himself do all the things that he's supposed to do. 
And it's working. On August 26th, the day before the shooting, in his philosophy of science class, lots of people want to be in his study group. And when class ended, they made a plan to meet over the weekend. And everyone was exchanging emails. And I was like, all right, okay, so I'll see you guys later. And, you know, it's like we were in the quad, and I'm walking out to go to my car. And I just continue walking like, you know, oh, I feel great. You know, like, this is good. I finally have my group ready to go. I'm going to go ahead and get home and continue being productive. I have a book that I really like to read. I'm going to go finish that. And then before This is the moment that we're roughly 20 hours before the shooting in the hospital room. Now, I guess in the car, he starts thinking about all the things that he needs to read and do and study. And something in him just kind of tips, he says. He starts to panic. But, you know, he gets home, he starts to cook some food, he tries to calm down. He's got a plan to play a video game online with his buddies, hooks up the PS4, gets on FaceTime with his friends. So I'm trying to play on the video, on the game, but it's like my wires start getting crossed. Like, well, like you know, things start getting confusing. Like, confusing, like, I have this controller, um, but then, like, a, a thought would interject. He thought, this controller somehow switches on a processor inside of him. You know, like, you're, I, like I'm this bionic being who had been reprogrammed by the enemy it's like where you have the delusional thoughts competing with your rational thoughts and then you disproving your your delusional thoughts but then another one comes up and it it seems more likely his computer he thought was not his computer it was a state-of-the-art device that could summon drones to destroy his apartment complex meaningless coincidences seemed like signals that he was on a secret mission Now, Alan had had delusional episodes before, two times. The first was in 2008, when he was a freshman at the University of Texas at Austin. It lasted about a week. Where I thought that I was uh, President Barack Obama, that I was like either a lookalike or someone that could be used as a replacement. But, you know, it's it's not so much like... I should tell you that your light-skinned black man <laughs> with short hair, you look nothing like President uh, yeah, Barack Obama. Yeah. So the next summer it happened again. And it was more of a biblical-type deal this time, Alan says. The delusion with demons in disguise, and he was on the verge of being sent to hell. Alan was briefly hospitalized, diagnosed as possible bipolar, and put on antipsychotic medications for a while. And he recovered. Six years passed without another incident. But that night... On the PS4, with his friends on FaceTime, it was all kicking in again. And what are your friends seeing? Do they know you're going through this freakout? They start asking Alan what's wrong. They, they had realized that I was acting strange. Like, why can't he log on to the computer? Why can't he log on to the PS4 or whatever? Like, mm-hmm. why can't he do that? Oh, because you're um, unable to do it. Yeah, I, I was like, no, I shouldn't do it because if I do, it it'll it'll they'll triangulate on my position so i couldn't tell them i couldn't tell it to them because i didn't know who exactly they were so he gets off the facetime call it's now 13 hours before the shooting and i was like who can i trust well obviously you trust your your brother your unit right so he's my my little brother dominic and uh i call him and i tell him hey man um i'm having a panic attack i'm having a panic attack and i don't know what to do and I think it's getting worse than that. So he called me at uh, 10 p.m. I just got back from class. Dominique says, actually, there's a fair amount of how was your day kind of small talk with Alan taking these weird, deep, deep breaths before Alan actually admitted he was having a panic attack. And I was like, oh, 
okay, well, you know, I, I get anxious, you know, kind of often too. So I, I walked in through some like, uh, just relaxation exercises. So I was like, take a deep breath in, out, lie on your back, put some water on your face. Water on your face, like cold water. Yeah. Cold water on your face. And, uh, he's like, oh, okay, well put some cold water on your face cold water on your face and i was like what what is it is it and i'm like i actually go to say i'm like is it because i'm overheating like you're some sort of robot right and he might also know that and he's he sort of knows what i need to do in order for my my circuits to calm down it continues like this the part of alan's brain that looks at the world and draws conclusions about what he sees, doesn't stop doing that. It's like he's still in there thinking and applying logic. It just keeps arriving at the wrong answers. So innocent statements said to him like, I don't know anybody in Houston who can come over to your apartment. Alan inserts into the delusion. I took that as code. Uh, There's no agents in your area that could come to your assistance. And I'm thinking like, well, wait a minute, like, what if, what if he's not really my brother? Could be some sort of trap. Alan hangs up on his brother. Dominique gets their dad to reach out. Here he is. So I call him and I try to calm him through it, you know, on the phone to try to relax him. This is Alan's dad, Dr. Harold Payon. He's originally from Haiti, hence the accent. I asked him, Alan, how you doing? You having some problem? They tell me and try to relax him to get his mind off. But he was very anxious. He was not able to focus, you know, to control it. So, and then suddenly he said, well, I think I'm going to just go drive to the hospital or something. Alan doesn't tell his dad or his brother that he's having delusions. He doesn't say what he's really thinking, which is that he's in greater and greater danger if he stays at his apartment. That there are snipers outside watching the front of the building. That if he walks out his front door, he'll get shot. And they're moving in. I thought at that point that time elapsed too long and that they're enclosing on my position and they're going to be there any moment. So I'm talking with my dad and I call him Pop. So I'm like, uh, Pop. And then the following word in my mind was Pop, which made me believe that the, the phone was going to explode, right? And then I like run out, throw my phone into the toilet and run out into the balcony and close the balcony door behind me. So... I'm on the balcony. It's the third story balcony. And I'm like, okay, well, just remember your training. And I start to climb over on the other side and essentially like let go and catch myself again on the second balcony area. And What? Yeah. I'm just trying to picture this. So you're in like a suburban apartment complex. It's, you're on the third floor. You're on a balcony. You're holding on to it. You let go, and you're able to drop one floor down and catch myself. And not break your arms. Nothing happened. Yeah, all my muscles must have been... You're, you're like, high. Like, like you're just adrenaline pumping. That's what I'm trying to say, like an adrenaline high. And it's just... Okay, then? So then after that, I catch myself on the second story, and I look down. and I keep telling myself, just remember your training. You trained for this. And then that refers to nothing, right? <laughs> what? You never tra- football training? No, I don't know. I never <laughs> trained for anything. So I, I'm just here like, remember your training and, you know, so, yeah. yeah. Um, and I look down and there's these two AC units down there. And I basically, from the second story to the AC units, I like do a parkour stunt, like jump off of it and then jump onto the sidewalk and I start running. 
Okay, I know it's a cliche, but the mind, it is powerful. By the way, this story about jumping down the balcony seems to be completely true. We checked with the property manager of the building, and for a bunch of reasons that I won't bore you with here, the way Alan's apartment was locked, the only way he could have gotten out is off the balcony. So, after Alan action heroes his way down the balcony, he makes his way to his car. Not a direct path, of course. Too dangerous. Evasive maneuvers, under cover of night. He believes that he called in a drone strike using Google Maps. In any second, the whole apartment complex is going to be blown up. So he's racing against the clock. And it's interesting. I didn't know what I thought a delusion would be like. I thought it might be like a hallucination or something. It might make no sense when you look at it later. But in this case, it's a totally logical story with consistent details, like a movie or a video game. I'm kind of like jogging, running. And you're full on delusion. You're not ever coming yeah, to Yeah, at this thinking, point, I do believe I'm a bionic person. I'm a cyborg guy. I'm, I'm a secret agent, you know, like yeah. on a mission to yeah. break himself out from mm-hmm. behind enemy lines. So I get into my car and I basically peel out and I get to the gate. The so gate of your, your suburban apartment, apartment complex. complex. And I'm like, why isn't the gate opening? They're, they locked it. They locked it, of course. You know, so I just I ram the gate open. You ram the gate with your car. That's right. Boom. It opens. Get out. Take a left. And there I am. I'm, I'm driving. I'm driving and I'm having these thoughts like that place is about to explode. However, as I'm driving... I tell myself, you were supposed to go somewhere before. Where's the rendezvous point? And it's at the hospital. It's at the hospital that you're supposed to go to. That's where the good guys are. But then he has a moment. He remembered he and his dad had talked about going to the hospital for a different reason. I had a moment of um, clarity. I need the. I need my medication. I need that. It's like, I need, it's geodone. It's an antipsychotic. Then the delusion kicks back in. So he's driving, looking for a hospital. Remember, he's just moved to town that month. And he sees St. Joseph Medical Center, Houston's oldest hospital and the only one downtown. It's like I just lost control of the car. I don't really remember. For me, it was like I was in the car, and the next thing I know, the car's crashed, and I'm, like, like falling out. That's it? That's all you remember of the accident? Yeah. How badly damaged was your car? The car was totaled. The car was totaled? You just totaled. rammed into the side of a, a wall it actually hit a bunch of cars before he slammed into the side of the hospital at high speed front of the car caved in airbags inflated even in his psychotic state and more seatbelt i mean i'm religious you know i thank god that i didn't hurt anyone else there I'm, i thank god that people there <sighs> just miraculously did not get hit at all so you get out of the car you walk to the hospital which is I, I how far from you 10 feet. I'm at the hospital. I crashed into the hospital. Okay. And there's an EMT guy right there. The EMT sees that Alan just crashed his car and probably needs medical attention. They put Alan on a stretcher and take him into the ER. This is where this turns from one kind of story, the story of Alan losing control of his mind, to the other story we're telling here. If you can show up in an emergency room, needing psychiatric help, and end up shot by the police in the hospital. And from this point in the story, for the 11 hours before the shooting... We don't have to rely on Alan's recollection. There's documentation of what he looked like from the outside to people who were not in his head, people who did not think that he was a robot cyborg on a secret mission. We have Alan's medical records. He gave permission for the hospital to turn them over. And there's a 50-page report 
prepared by federal investigators on what happened from the time Alan arrived at the hospital until he was shot. Alan gets to the emergency room at 10 minutes before midnight. And St. Joseph is a big downtown hospital. It gets lots of trauma patients, lots of mentally ill patients, some homeless people. Staff often have to quickly assess what a patient needs to be treated for. And even though the staff notices all kinds of things that might lead them to treat Alan for his psychiatric problem, they don't do it. What they treat Alan for is the car crash, which must have seemed pretty urgent. The diagnosis in his medical chart is hand abrasion, substance abuse, motor vehicle accident. They do a CT scan of his head, spine, chest, abdomen, and pelvis looking for injuries. They test him for drugs and alcohol. Those come up negative except for marijuana, which can linger in the body for weeks. Alan says that he tried to tell the ER staff what it is that he came for, that he was having a manic episode. It's like I snapped back into myself and went, I just say, I'm manic, I'm manic, I'm manic, and I say it multiple times. And I'm saying that, and there's people around me. There's, like, nurses and stuff who are, like, putting needles and things in me, and it never clicked. There's no mention of that in his medical records. And there's no mention of phone calls that his brother Christian and his father say they made at 1 a.m. and 1.14 a.m., respectively, to alert the hospital about Alan's psychiatric issues. Though that's not unusual that phone calls like that wouldn't be mentioned in the chart. But the medical records do include all kinds of things that could have tipped the staff off about what was really wrong. On Alan's arrival at the ER, the first handwritten notes from a resident on duty include that Alan is someone who has manic depression. Then, Alan is so incoherent, making so little sense, that the attending physician notes in the chart that he can't get Alan to describe his medical history or even a basic rundown of his symptoms. By 1.30 in the morning, the nurse's notes say that Alan is acting weirdly, trying to pull out his IVs and his lines. They, quote, educate him on his behavior and ask him not to remove any equipment. He doesn't stop. He tries to pull out his own catheter. This continues for hours. He starts telling the staff that he feels all better, no need for any equipment. But they still don't treat him like a psychiatric case. Alan and his family told me their sense of the staff's attitude was, oh, this is just a guy, drunk or on drugs, crashed his car, happens all the time. Alan's put into a hospital room for observation of his injuries. His father booked a plane to Houston from their home in McAllen, Texas. We decided to fly right away, yeah. 6.45, we went to Houston at 6.45 in the morning. Dr. Payan and his wife Paloma get to Alan's hospital room around 10 a.m. Well, I say, Alan, we are here, you know, we came to see you, say, hi, pop. But he would not, I say, how you doing? He would not tell me anything. And it was different than, than usual, you know. So I say, well, that's not him. He was totally withdrawn. Didn't hug them low. Alan explains why. I do recall my parents showing up, and I don't actually believe it's them. Like, I don't think it's them. In Alan's mind, he's still on his mission, which is evolving. The TV in his room is sending coded messages, and the IV tubes he's hooked up to? They're putting the serum that I need in order for the morphing process to begin, right? To morph. Uh, to look more like Barack Obama, because if he is taken out, they don't know where he is, but they need someone to to speak out as though the government is still functioning as normal. Now, his dad knows none of that. All he knows is something is wrong. He goes to the nurse's station. So I talked with the nurse, and I told him, look, I think he's having some kind of anxiety or panic, and I wanted to talk with the doctor. And I say to her that I think she, she may need some kind of psychiatric help. Did you say, I want a psychiatric evaluation? He, that's right. I, I told her, I, I think he needs to be evaluated by a psychiatrist. And what did the nurse say? 
According to the report by federal investigators, the nurse confirmed he did ask for a psychiatric evaluation, and she did tell him Alan was going to be discharged. And I asked what medication they were giving him. They said that was going, they were giving him cyclobenzaprine. And I told her, well, I don't think that's appropriate. Maybe that will make it worse. What was your fear that it would do to Alan? That's a muscle relaxant, but you, some people, they may cause psychosis, actually, because that's part of the side effect, confusion, dizziness, psychosis. I think it probably make him more, like, disoriented, confused, but she said, well, that's what the doctor prescribed. Did you identify yourself as a doctor? Yeah, I told the nurse that I'm a physician from McCallum. I'm internal medicine, you know. And, but she just didn't pay attention, you know. She, she thought that maybe I was lying. I don't know, you know, what was in her head. He said the nurse said to him, maybe hearing his accent, you might be a doctor somewhere, but you're not a doctor here. So Dr. Payne and his wife figured, okay, no help here. They would drive Alan back home to McCallum and get psychiatric help there. They'll have to arrange for a car rental. The doctor did come looking for them, according to federal investigators, but they'd already left. Alan gets shot in his own hospital room less than 40 minutes after they go. Here's how that goes down. I'm going to read you a little bit from the 50-page report issued by federal investigators. Quote, At 11 o'clock, the patient was encouraged to put on his gown after he had a shower, but refused and started dancing in his room. The patient came out of his room naked four to five times. The nurse stated at this time the patient was calm and responsive. She stated each time she redirected him, he would say, Yes, ma'am. Radio. Okay, ma'am. When I said year it was, he said 1989. Sometime later, the patient came out in the hallway naked, except he had shoes on. He was told to go back to his room, and the nurse would come in to assist him with his gown. She stated she went to the room with another nurse and was trying to help the patient into his gown and told him to turn around so they could tie the gown. The patient started to dance and would not comply. The nurse said the patient was acting inappropriately. She said he would not comply with her orders to turn around so his gown could be buttoned up. Do you remember why you were going out into the hallway naked? I don't remember. I know, I don't recall dancing, but I do know that I was going out there because whenever I finished taking my shower, I was like, well, where, where's, you know, where's the suit? Remember, he's morphing into Barack Obama. He's about to address the nation. Need a suit for that kind of thing. In the hallway, I'd expect other people to be there that would help me uh, with the changing process, just to look professional or to hand me my script. If a patient doesn't comply with the orders, it's protocol in the hospital to ring for security, and the nurse does that. Now, this particular hospital calling security usually gets you uniformed guards who don't carry weapons, but also might get you off-duty cops who are on the security team. It depends on who's available. This time, it's the cops who arrive in full Houston Police Department uniforms with guns. They go into his room and close the door. This, by the way, is not standard hospital procedure, I was told. A nurse, a doctor, somebody treating the patient should have been in there with them. Now, at this point, once the cops are inside that room, the story gets a little hazy. It's not totally clear what happened inside the room. The police turned down our interview requests. And Alan's lawyers told him not to talk about the details either because the whole thing is going to court. But there are some things we know for sure. We know the cops were not in that room for long, a few minutes at most. We know there was a scuffle. Several people told investigators that. And the staffer I interviewed, whose voice we're replacing with an actor's, 
said you could hear it from outside Alan's hospital room. We heard noise, and we couldn't identify exactly what it was. We didn't know if it was maybe a table hitting a wall. It was just like a pop and all kinds of stuff. One nurse told investigators she heard a scream. On the day of the shooting in August, the Houston Police Department issued a brief statement about what happened next. It's still on their website. It says when the officers arrived, Alan attacked. Quote, the patient suddenly physically assaulted Officer Ortega, striking him in the head, causing a laceration. At that time, Officer Law deployed his conducted energy device, that's the taser, which had no apparent effect on the suspect, who continued to assault the officers. Officer Ortega, fearing for his and his partner's safety, then discharged his duty weapon, striking the subject one time. Allen disputes this account. He and his lawyers say he did not attack the officers first, but they charged him first, and he responded. Soon, the door to his hospital room opened. That, by the way, is when the hospital staffer, who I interviewed, arrived in the hallway outside Alan's room. Again, uh, we've replaced the staffer's voice with an actor saying the same words, and I hope this isn't weird. You're hearing my original questions from the recording of the original interview mixed with the actor's voice. Apparently, they had probably just opened it, and the first thing I seen was a cop fall out of the room on the floor. So you're out in the hallway. Correct. Well, I didn't go that close to the room because when you see a cop with a bloody eye on the floor, that states, like, stay where you are, don't go any closer. He was bleeding from his eye? His head, like right above his right eye. We weren't sure if it was the eye or the head. It was just this huge, red, fresh gash. It was big. This is from the account by the federal investigators. Quote, Inside the room, the other officer was standing over the patient who was lying on the floor, he had a taser on his upper chest. There was blood on the wall and floor. The patient was conscious, trying to get up, saying he was Superman and needed to get up. The doctor who rushed into the room and treated him told investigators, again, I'm quoting the federal report here, quote, he heard a code blue page overhead while he was walking upstairs. He realized it was his patient's room and went to the floor. He went to the patient's room and saw him lying on the floor on his back with a drape over him. The patient was quiet. His eyes were closed. The doctor says he took the drape off the patient and saw he was handcuffed. When he asked what happened, he was told the patient was just tasered. He asked if the patient was shot because of the blood and multiple wounds. The response was that the patient was tasered. While the doctor began to assess the patient, somebody mentioned that he was shot. While Alan was recovering in the intensive care unit, police handcuffed him to his bed and restricted his family's visits to just 10 minutes a day, and they couldn't enter the room. They had to look at him through a window. That's because police saw him as a criminal. They charged Alan with two counts of aggravated assault, one for each officer. I couldn't believe it. Again, here's Alan. I was expecting an apology. I was expecting 100% an apology, and that is not what, what happened, and I could not believe it. I couldn't believe it. I don't know if you... Um, how is it that you have these officers who shoot an unarmed patient in the hospital and then he is the bad guy? He's the guy that needs to go to jail, you know, and it's jarring. I just don't get I don't understand. Later, when federal investigators asked Alan about the shooting, he said, quote, he forgave the police officers. But what he cannot understand is why police officers were in his room when he was an ill patient trying to get well. 
So what were armed police doing in a patient's room? This is something a New York Times correspondent, Elizabeth Rosenthal, has been looking into. As I said earlier, the story that you're hearing right now is a collaboration between our radio show and the New York Times. And when Elizabeth Rosenthal heard about Alan Payon, she wondered how common this kind of thing was. Elizabeth's also a doctor and has worked in hospitals, but none that allowed guns. And she just started calling hospitals and looking at the few surveys that exist on this stuff. The one national survey on this subject found that about half of all hospitals now allow guns. And the evidence suggests that that's about doubled in the past three years. Doubled. Lots of hospitals now have police and ex-military doing security with guns. Hospitals aren't required to keep records on how many of their patients are injured or killed by those guns. But Elizabeth looked for that as well by digging through old police blotters, court documents, news accounts, and surveys, and found over a dozen cases, most of them mentally ill patients. First, on the very same day that Alan was shot, there was another psychiatric patient who was shot and killed at a hospital in suburban Cleveland. Uh, And then just in January this year, there was another patient with bipolar illness who was shot and paralyzed by security in a Virginia hospital. Um, And then sometimes people die when they're shocked with tasers. So there's two cases, one in Utah and one in Ohio, where patients were actually killed after repeated tasering. Both were by hospital security. Both were psychiatric patients. Of course, we all would hope that police would know how to deal with people who are mentally ill. They have to do it on the street all the time. But they don't always do it so well. In December, the Washington Post published the results of a huge year-long investigation into police shootings nationwide. They found that last year, officers fatally shot at least 243 people with mental health problems. And in most of those cases, the cops who pulled the trigger hadn't received any training in how to deal with the mentally ill. And their tactics escalated a situation rather than calmed it down. So why are hospitals turning to police? Why have the number of guns in hospitals apparently doubled in just three years? Well, for one thing, violence in hospitals has also nearly doubled in that same period. It's up 40%, according to statistics gathered by the International Healthcare Security and Safety Foundation. Most of that violence is against hospital staff. A study last year by the Occupational Safety and Health Administration revealed that there is more violence in hospitals than any other workplace. And the way hospitals have responded to this violence, Elizabeth found, is a hodgepodge. One national survey found that half of all hospitals have tasers. They have them partly thanks to an aggressive marketing campaign directed at hospitals by Taser International. In New York's hospital system, which has several of the busiest emergency rooms in the country, security carries no weapons. And lots of hospitals, as I've said, have decided they're comfortable with guns. Someone said to me, and I think this is true, it kind of reflects the divide in American society right now about guns, whether they make you feel safer or not. Right, and that just varies around the country, depending on... That varies a lot by your background, where you live in the country. You know, do you feel safer when you see a person with a gun at the door of the emergency room? I think the second issue then is... If you decide you need weapons in your emergency room or in your hospital, how are the people trained who are using them? This may actually be a bigger issue than the guns themselves. Have the people carrying the guns been trained to work in a healthcare setting? Because it's different. It's not like law enforcement. When there's a patient who's psychotic or acting up from a mental illness, like Alan Payon, there are standard techniques that nurses and hospital security use to get control of the situation non-confrontational ways of speaking to patients, restraints, medicines. Simply warning a patient that you're going to give them a shot can calm them down. 
And in her research, Elizabeth found some hospitals that taught these techniques to the security officers when they brought in tasers or guns and set clear rules about when to deploy weapons and how armed security would interact with staff and patients. But that definitely wasn't every place. I mean, that's the thing that shocked me. As I called around to different hospitals, there was no pattern to this. It was all over the map. And sometimes there'd been a lot of thought put into the process. And sometimes, um, in fact, there seemed to be very little thought. When it comes to Alan Payon's case in St. Joseph Medical Center, the federal investigation notes that police officers were supposed to be trained to de-escalate situations and restrain confused patients. But there's no evidence that it ever happened. This is quoting from the federal investigation report. Quote, the facility failed to provide evidence that contracted police officers were trained in dealing with confused, disoriented, and aggressive patients. The facility failed to ensure contract police officers were trained in the use of safe, acceptable health care interventions for confused and aggressive patients. This resulted in the tasering, shooting, and handcuffing of a confused, aggressive patient. End quote. This is actually what was galling to the staffer that I talked to from St. Joseph Medical Center. This person said that these cops were walking into a totally normal situation for the hospital that any trained staff or the regular hospital security could have handled without firearms. That's an everyday thing for us. We see that all the time. You see it all day. You see confused, demented people that can be very combative. I mean, hospital staff, we get abused, and we're putting more danger than or just as much danger as cops on the street. We don't walk around with guns. You know, we get hit. We get hit by patients all the time. As long as that person doesn't have a weapon to harm someone else, you know, why should you have a weapon? Or why should you use your weapon? To be clear, this medical staffer thought that it was totally appropriate. They liked it. It made them feel safer that a couple cops with guns would be in the emergency room in case somebody with a weapon came into the hospital. But sending cops to the room of somebody like Alan Payon? It's totally different. First of all, if someone's delusional and two cops walk into the room, it's a normal reaction for that patient that's having delusions or that's psychotic to react violently. That's how they are. That's what they do. So you kind of give that space. You stay back. You find out what's going on. You try and talk to them to see if they're safe to approach or not. And that's what... I'm not sure if that was done or not. To paraphrase an old saying... Guns in hospitals don't kill people. Guns in hospitals, wielded by people who are not trained to have guns in hospitals, kill people. So better training of the officers in Alan Payan's case might have prevented the shooting. But in his particular case, there was something else that could have stopped this from happening. Something simple. Alan could have been given a psychiatric evaluation. Remember, The ER staff noted Alan's erratic mental state in his chart, but didn't get him evaluated. And Alan's father asked for a psych evaluation, but he was ignored. The St. Joseph staffer that I talked to said, it's hard to understand why. You know, um, I hate to say it because we never want to talk bad about anyone that we work with. And I wasn't there, but if that was said to a medical professional then their wishes should have been complied with immediately. That's the protocol. That's what's supposed to happen. And is it true that if he had been diagnosed as a psych patient, he would have been in a psych ward where no guns are allowed? Correct. So that would have prevented this whole thing? Correct. You don't want guns in psychiatry wards for common sense reasons. It's too dangerous. You don't want a patient to grab the gun. 
and seeing firearms might agitate certain patients. Because of that, almost universally, guns are banned from state mental hospitals in the United States. When officers enter those facilities, they check their guns at the door. Possibly the one exception is Texas, where Allen was shot. Where just last month, on January 1st, four months after Allen's shooting, it became legal to carry licensed firearms in state-run psychiatric hospitals. When the Payon family filed a complaint against the hospital with the federal government, specifically the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, or CMS, CMS felt the shooting raised serious enough questions about St. Joseph Medical Center that they had investigators at the hospital within five days of the shooting and publicly raised the possibility that St. Joseph might lose its federal funding. When the investigators interviewed St. Joseph's chief executive officer, Mark Bernard, about the incident, he told them that he stood by the officers. This is from the report. He said, quote, that the minute the patient hit the uniformed police officer, it became a criminal offense, and the officers went into police mode and were justified in the actions they took to protect themselves. When asked what other interventions could have been used by the security staff, the CEO said, quote, if it should happen today, they would not have done anything different. I wonder if the CEO still felt that way, given the evidence in the federal report that police officers may not have been properly trained to deal with a patient like Alan Payon and that hospital staff failed to do a psychiatric evaluation. The hospital referred this and all of our questions to an outside crisis manager they work with named Rhonda Barnett. I was told that CEO Mark Bernard declined to answer that question. I ran CEO Mark Bernard's statement, quote, if it should happen today, they would not have done anything different by Alan's father. Remember, as a physician, I'm familiar with hospitals and how they work. His response is that of a doctor and a father. That's crazy. That's totally crazy. Can you believe that? You know, so he didn't see anything wrong. He said that was normal procedure. I mean, can you believe a CEO saying that? That's that's terrible. I I don't understand it. So that would be standard procedure for a patient who's sick. Instead of sending the doctor, send police officers and then shot them. You know, that's totally absurd. We sent what Alan's dad said to the hospital's crisis manager to give CEO Mark Bernard a chance to respond along with a long list of other questions. In reply, the hospital issued this statement, which it said came from CEO Mark Bernard. Quote, In the wake of this sad event, we are reviewing our practices and procedures as we continue to provide the best possible care to those we serve. Change is happening at St. Joseph. According to the report by federal investigators, St. Joseph is now limited where police officers can go in the hospital to peripheral areas. They can't go to patients' rooms unless staff has tried everything else to calm a situation. St. Joseph also has to do crisis prevention training with staff and police. They have 17 months to get their act together, or they lose their federal funding. Okay, so, so basically, you drove yourself to a hospital, mm-hmm. and when you were at the hospital... You said explicitly you're having a manic episode, you're unarmed, Mm -hmm. and you end up shot. Yep. Correct. Okay, I don't even know what my question is. I just (laughs) want to say that seems bad. On a whole bunch of levels, and it opened my eyes in a way that I I sort of never wanted to. Um, What do you mean? Well, I'm... I'm black. Because you don't Sorry. think this would have happened if you were white. No, I don't. Yeah. 
that's the only reason this guy was able to look at me and decide that, hey, you know, he needs to be shot in the chest. I think they just, you know, another black guy acting crazy, angry black guy. In the immediate wake of the shooting, Alan's father says that one of the questions the police asked him over and over was, did Alan have a criminal record? Alan told me that, of course, he's seen all the news stories about young black men being shot by police. I would think an outrage is an outrage. It's, it's a complete outrage, but I would never think that it would happen to me. I'm, I'm privileged, right? I, I acknowledge that. I acknowledge I'm privileged. There's a family of doctors, a family with money. That car that he crashed into the hospital it was a 2010 Lexus. And it's interesting, of the four black men in the family, three of them thought that they were living a life where they would never have this kind of run-in with a cop. One of Alan's closest friends is a cop. His dad is friends with cops. Only Christian, the oldest son, thought it could happen to him. In fact, when his father texted him the day of the shooting to say that something had happened, Alan was in the ICU. They didn't know what happened yet. Christian's first text back was, Wait, what? What? Did they shoot him? Alan Payon nearly died. The bullet hit him squarely in the chest. It missed his aorta by millimeters. He lost a third of the blood in his body. I can't believe that I'm even here walking around standing, and I don't know why he would shoot me in the chest unless he was trying to kill me. That's a kill shot, so that's... I don't think too much about it. I try not to, I think, actually, honestly. Because it just freaks you out. It does. Yeah. And, you know, I can't, I, I really can't handle it sometimes. Like, well, I, I can take it, right? Like, I'm, like, I heard you say it like that. It's just, I still think I'm in shock that I, I don't know how to handle it. I don't know how to handle it. Well, yeah. That day in August, Alan had a delusion that people were out to kill him. That if he walked out of his apartment, he'd be shot. There were assassins after him. He was going to get shot. And then he was shot. His literally crazy thought came true. How do you make sense of that? The New York Times version of this story is online now at their website. It's great with great photos at newyorktimes.com slash hospital. It's also in the Sunday newspaper from this weekend. Coming up, consciously telling yourself things that you know are not true as a way to use your mind and its power. That's in a minute. Chicago Public Radio, when our program continues. It's American Life from Ira Glass. Today's program, My Damn Mind. Our first act was about somebody whose mind was sending him jumping off of balconies. And now in this part of our show, we're turning to a very different story, still about a man and his brain and the awesome and confounding power of one's own mind. In this case, though, it is about a man harnessing that power for a constructive purpose of his own. This is Act 2 of our show, Act 2, Don't Need to Know Basis. The man in this story is Michael Kinsley, writer, editor, known for, among other things, starting the online magazine Slate and for being just a very sharp, funny observer of American politics and human nature generally, including his own nature. He is a human. Nancy Updike talked to him. Michael Kinsley wrote an essay years ago. It was funny, naturally, in which he announced that he had Parkinson's disease. The essay was called In Defense of Denial, 
because what he was really announcing was that he had already had Parkinson's for the previous eight years. In that time, he said, the way he had chosen to use his mind, his deliberate strategy for dealing with Parkinson's, had been denial. And he was not writing to confess or apologize or to vow not to engage in denial in the future. He was talking about the benefits of self-deception and secrecy. His argument was, when it comes to serious illness, like with all terrible things that happen to us, sure, yes, the goal is to get to acceptance, eventually, if you can. But acceptance is not a strategy, he said. It's not something you can just do. He said, really, there are only two strategies, denial or confrontation. Confrontation, it's the strategy that everything in our culture pushes you toward, mm-hmm. you know, uh, fighting it all the way, mm-hmm. and also joining the community of, of sufferers of whatever, making it your life. Who, who are you? I'm someone with Parkinson's. And and I I'm going off to my uh, um, my support group. Right. They really engage. They they yes. Michael yes. J. Fox right. is an example and a thoroughly admirable example. Yeah. Of, of 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 how to react. He's made it his cause, both his public cause and his personal cause, and that's great. But I just decided that is not for me. Um, you went with denial. Denial, and then which is which is the opposite. You don't think about it. You don't get involved. You don't learn everything you can about it. You try to live your life and spend your time outside of that world. And you know there that that many ways this was a cowardly choice, but it was the choice I made. I really appreciate a person who's prepared to use every mental trick in dealing with sickness. Mike's essay spoke to me. I've experienced the clear benefits of denial. I know what it's like to choose that option. I had a tumor in my abdomen three years ago, cancer. In the week before the surgery, denial, carefully executed, not thinking, was my only goal. I wasn't graceful or even logical about it. For some reason, my denial involved making several trips to the drugstore, Dwayne Reed, to buy dental floss, and yet more dental floss. Not sure why floss. Mike suggested maybe I was stockpiling a message to myself. You will live to floss long into the future. When he chose denial, Mike did feel bad about deceiving other people, not just the general public, but also people he knew. And he said he tried not to lie outright. But denial was very good to him. It gave him eight years of privacy, eight years of relative normalcy. Nothing else could have done that. And he saw another benefit. You know, you have, if, if, you're, if you're lucky, you have good friends and close relatives who are going to help you get through it. But the best person in the world's sympathy is going to be limited. Mm-hmm. So so you do think, well, do I want to use that up? Um, maybe that's a crazy way to look at it. But I thought, I'm going to need their sympathy in years to come, and I don't especially need it now. As Mike's symptoms progressed bit by bit, some tremors, some stiffness, he told more people, 
bit by bit. And he ignored each person's advice in turn because every person was saying the same thing. No more denial. The upshot was that Mike continued not reading up on Parkinson's, continued trying to know as little as possible, while his friends were reading up. Thanks to a couple of them, he ended up at the Cleveland Clinic to get brain surgery, basically because his friends had been badgering him to go there and see a doctor who was surgically placing electrodes in the brains of people with Parkinson's to help slow down the progress of the disease's physical symptoms. Well, it was sort of a slippery slope. They say, why don't you just go and let him examine you and see if you're suitable for it? It's like a, it's like and, a blind date. Maybe just go meet her. She's nice. Yeah. Yes. Well, um, I did, and they, you know, they wanted to make sure you were up for this. Mm-hmm. And um, after I'd been to Cleveland two or three times, they suddenly said, well, how about July 12th? I'm making up the date. But they, they, wow, they got very specific all of a sudden. Yeah, and I, and I didn't think about it nearly as long as I should have. There, are, there is a controversy about which particular spot in the brain mm-hmm. you should go to, and different surgeons do different spots. Mm-hmm. But uh, that's a perfect example of something I didn't research, but that many people would and do. Um, but... I said, okay, and next thing I knew, I was in Cleveland. And you were you nervous? Um, yeah. I mean, I'm not that good at denial that I wouldn't be nervous about, about brain surgery. Yeah. So they just they said, we're just going to make a little hole, and they said it's just dime-sized. And that, that took me back because... I think of a dime-sized hole as being pretty big. Pretty large. For them, it's yes. small. For you, it's big. Uh, yeah. Because it's your brain. And, yeah. Yeah. And, and, but I thought, well, this is, this is how they do it. And, <laughs> okay. And they, and they screw your head to the table so it, so it won't move while, yeah. while the surgery's happening, right? Even though it's general yeah. anesthesia, you're not, it's not local or anything. No. No, it's not general anesthesia. You, you were awake? For most of the for most of the time. Oh my God! Because they they had to. Uh, well, it's like you're down in the basement trying to replace a fuse, and someone has to go upstairs to see if the light comes on. Right. And so that was me. Right. You were the test as, about whether they were getting it right. Yeah, and it was quite weird. You know, they could, they could. Uh, I press a button or something, and my hand would start to to wave. The surgery did what it was supposed to. It slowed the progress of the physical symptoms, which then allowed Mike to continue his project of exercising however much denial he possibly could at every stage. Parkinson's isn't usually fatal, or as Mike has cheerfully written over the years, Parkinson's gives you a decent chance for something else to get you first. But Parkinson's does get worse over time. And maybe even more galling, Parkinson's is not just one thing. Eight years after the brain surgery, Mike wrote another essay about Parkinson's in The New Yorker. It's called, Have You Lost Your Mind? Look it up if you haven't read it. It's great. It's about the research, more and more of it over the last couple of decades, indicating that Parkinson's can include cognitive symptoms. It can affect your thinking. A doctor once said to you, 
um, when you asked him, I think it was a him, when you asked him about the, the cognitive issues associated with Parkinson's, he said, well, you may lose your edge. Yes, that was that was the most terrifying moment, I think, in the whole process. I mean, I make my living off of my edge. And and also it's it's part of my sense of who I am. He thought he was sort of soft peddling something, saying yeah. oh, you might lose your edge, but you know, you're as though you're still uh, an intact thing with just a slightly softer edge, and meanwhile, for you, you were thinking, "But I am my edge. My edge is me. I'm not a thing with an edge. I like the edge is the that's that's me. That's what feels like yeah. me." Yeah, that's exactly it. But I let me say to anyone who cares who's listening that I have not lost my mind. Mike says the rallying cry for his generation is death before dementia, only after a very long life, of course. He wrote in his New Yorker essay that the kind of thing you'd want people to say about you, looking back, would be something like, he was 102 years old when he was accidentally shot by a neighbor and still sharp as a tack. Parkinson's is different from Alzheimer's. The cognitive issues vary a lot from person to person, and they're still being researched. But dementia is one possibility. And a big reason we know that is because other people with Parkinson's, the confronters, not the deniers, are talking about it. Most of our information about cognitive problems comes from the patient, him or herself. And I'm thinking, are these people out of their minds? You want to send yeah. a, like a, a mass email to everybody with Parkinson's just saying, can we all just not talk about this? Why are yes. we talking about this? Yes. Well, I, I, when I hear people talking about this, I think, shut up, shut up. You actually think shut up at them? <laughs> yeah, it doesn't work. <laughs> I, I, I switch back into denial when it comes to the cognitive thing. And yet here I am discussing it on a national radio show, so obviously my my motives are mixed. Do you not want to talk about it? <laughs> well, <laughs> we have nothing else to talk about, Nancy. Um, <laughs> I'm sure we could find something. Yes, well, we got the New Hampshire primary. Yes, yes. Did you watch the Super Bowl? No. No? Uh, Beyonce, anything? Yeah. No. No. Okay. What's she done? Nancy Updike is one of the producers of our program. Michael Kinsley is a contributing columnist for Vanity Fair and The Washington Post. He has a new book coming out in April called Old Age, A Beginner's Guide. It's available for pre-order right now. Y'all haters corny with that Illuminati mess. Paparazzi catch my fly and my cocky fresh. I'm so reckless when I rock my Givenchy dress. I'm so possessive, so I rock his rock necklaces. My daddy Alabama, mama Louisiana. You mix that Negro with that Creole, make a Texas Bama. Oh, I like my-
Our program is produced today by Hannah Jaffe, Walt, with Zoe Chase, Sean Cole, Neil Drumming, Stephanie Fu, Miki Neek, Jonathan Menhivar, Robin Semi, and Alyssa Ship, and Nancy Updike. Our senior producers, Brian Reed. Our editors, Joe Glavel, Julie Snyder is our editorial consultant. Our technical director is Matt Tierney. Production help from Iris Smith. Seth Lind is our operations director. Emily Condon is our production manager. Elise Bergerson is our business operations manager. Elna Baker scouts stories for our show. Kimberly Henderson is our office coordinator. Research help today from Christopher Sutala and Benjamin Anastas. Music help today from Damian Gray from Rob Geddes. Special thanks today to our collaborators at the New York Times, who are such a pleasure to work with, Katrin Einhorn, Rebecca Corbett, and Elizabeth Rosenthal, and to actor Scott Shepard for doing so beautifully what is probably the weirdest gig of his entire acting career, playing a hospital staffer whose voice we were concealing. Our website, thisamericanlife.org. This American Life is delivered to public radio stations by PRX, the public radio exchange. Thanks, as always, to our program's co-founder, Mr. Tony Malatia. You know, how do I get through this program every week? Let me tell you, I just come into the studio, I look up at the photo at Tori Malatia that is here in the radio studio, and I can hear his voice in my head saying, Just remember your training. You trained for this. I'm Ira Glass. Back next week with more stories of This American Life. Where is my